This week's show is supported by Cardio Women's Initiative. The Cardio Women's Initiative is an incredible program which provides women founders with mentorship, training, and funding. If your business has an environmental or social impact, find out more and apply now via the link in the show notes. Applications close 30th of June, 2023. Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. In today's episode, we look at Stan Grant's powerful plea to Australia, the link between childcare accessibility and cost of living in regional Australia, a viral photo of a CEO breastfeeding her child, and the sad situation and passing of 95-year-old Claire Nolan. What happened? We're recording this episode of The Crux on the 24th of May, 2023. My name is Tyler Lambert and I am joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda's publisher, Angela Priestley. Ange, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I should also say that today we have a great interview with Brooke Blurton as well, so look out for that. But Ange, first to our wins this week, what is yours? So my win, amongst a bit of a mess of news this week, but my win came from a CEO called Lisa Conn, that's C-O-N-N, and she's based in the US and she leads a venture-backed tech startup, Gather Round. So what she did was she posted to LinkedIn a few weeks back a photo that she had this new job, that she had just been appointed as CEO when she'd previously been the CFO of this company. She was CFO when she went on parental leave about, I think it was, you know, three to six months ago or so. She was then appointed CEO, which is a great story in itself. And so when she did her announcement to LinkedIn, as you do, saying you've got a new job or you've just been promoted, she actually put a photo of herself up that had her breastfeeding her baby while she was on a Teams meeting and running a team meeting. So her husband had taken the photo at home, so she's in her home office. You can see she's got the screen open and she's breastfeeding her baby at the same time. And it's, you know, obviously a really lovely photo and comes across as quite different on LinkedIn as well. And it received a huge response, received thousands of comments and was seen by millions of people, had millions of views on that post. The win here is that her reaction afterwards, and she went and wrote a piece about this afterwards, was that it actually ended up that the organisation received all these applications for jobs because they'd seen the CEO breastfeeding her daughter and they're like, wow, that company really is flexible and it really is kind of interested in my needs uh, and the family that I have and things like that. So they received a massive uptick in CVs coming to the organisation and they also received a massive uptick in inquiries to the organisation from potential clients. So I thought that was so awesome to see and pretty cool. Not so awesome was the fact that the Post received plenty of misogynistic comments like who's looking after the baby, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Maybe the mother that's holding the baby and feeding the baby. (laughs) 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 I know I did love that. I mean, I loved the picture and I loved the outcome, Uh, not so much the trolling. My win this week is a policy one, and it's that the wait time between people applying for and accessing vital financial support from the federal government's escaping violence payment has been reduced from 33 days, which was what was in place a year ago, to now 28 days, six months ago, and now it is at just six days. So that's a big change for victim survivors who have been previously languishing around this payment and and not being able to leave probably when they need to. So, you know, that's a really welcome shift and I think it will make a big difference. Um, Obviously, it would be better to see that dwindled down to one or two days, but, you know, bureaucracy 
So it's definitely something that could save lives. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I love that as well. Um, I mean, when we first reported it, and it was first 28 days, six months ago, but 33 days a year ago. So when the Albanese government came into office, Amanda Rishworth has, you know, really dedicated and said that you know, she went and had meetings about this and tried to see what could be done to fix this. It just seemed crazy that anyone should wait. Like, what is the point on the payment if you're waiting, you know, weeks for it to arrive? The whole idea is that it helps you get set up with a new safe home somewhere. Mm. So yeah, huge bit like you would like to see it reduced to, you know, nothing. And I think there's also an issue there and I'm not sure if this has changed as yet, but a huge portion of that $5,000 is provided in vouchers. And I've seen Green Senator Larissa Waters talk about this saying that it is somewhat condescending, I guess it has to be in vouchers. It would be much more helpful if it was, you know, more flexible than that. Yeah, just that, a lump payment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, look, small gains. Um, yeah, exactly. A really to, important one. Yeah. Yeah. More work to be done. Okay. Well, now to our first story, and we might talk briefly to this one, and it comes just with news that we've learned in the last few hours, which is that uh, 95-year-old Claire Norland has died in hospital and her death comes almost a week after she was I think we can all say inexplicably tasered in a nursing home where she was suffering from dementia. The incident, which is a story that has very much gone international of people thinking what the hell is going on in Australia, but it raises a lot of questions first and foremost, like why a 20-something-year-old police officer tasered a 95-year-old woman who was 45 kilos with a walking frame and you know, had a kitchen knife or something in her hand. It also raises questions about nursing homes, why police were called in the first place. And as uh, we had one of our colleagues write yesterday, just you know, talking about dementia as well and, and how we look after dementia patients and how we will deal with more dementia patients in the future and particularly with uh, the rising number of women who suffer from dementia. Tyler, it's hard to know where to start, but any comments on, on this story? Oh, look, just a really quick one because I feel like everyone feels the same. But, you know, my two grandmas were in nursing homes. Both of them had dementia. Both of them became aggressive because that is a symptom of dementia. It's a, a really obvious one, you know, and it just, I think it threw up this feeling for everyone that that could happen to their own family member. And how, how the heck was that ever like given the go ahead? It's such a, a sad situation. I really feel for, for Claire's family. Um, and I think that that's really all that can be said. I, I know that that police officer is now suspended. Who knows what kind of inquiry goes into that? But yeah, I mean, I think that there obviously needs to be some work done in the police force and in training. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel for this life of this 95-year-old and you think about and all the many kids that she had and the many grandkids she had and I saw photos and footage of her on a recent birthday celebrating with her family and it was really lovely to see. You could just see how well-loved she is and the fact that her life sort of ends with this after 95 years. It's so tragic. Of course, I mean, there have been charges laid against a police officer. Her death and the later part of her life uh, will be remembered in this way and it's such a horrible incident. And I think, I mean, I hope there'll be more in this conversation as well. It's like why would police ever be called to a nursing home and also what we can do for aged care workers. And I think, you know, there's a lot around this. It, part of it comes back to valuing 
aged care workers, I think, and ensuring they have the training and they are equipped with the skills they need to deal with any situation. And maybe highlighting that, like, yeah, that, that there is a lot to that type of work. It really needs to be valued. And part of that work is coming up against situations like this, sadly, and like you mentioned about your grandparents as well, Tala. Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. It's just, it's a really heartbreaking situation. And we'll go to the next story this week. And again, a really sad situation as well. But veteran Indigenous journalist Dan Grant took a step back from his role on ABC's Q&A this week. And the reason he did so was amid a huge amount of racially charged backlash, which he's been subjected to uh, over the last few months and particularly in the wake of the King's coronation in which he was asked to be a commentator on that ceremony with the ABC. Uh, He says he felt really unsupported by the ABC's leadership and basically that the abuse had taken too much of a toll on he and his family, which is completely understandable. I think it just threw up a whole lot of other questions and I think we need to all look at ourselves in the mirror a bit around, you know, racism in this country because clearly we have a problem with it. And as we approach a referendum at the end of the year towards uh, having the voice in parliament, you know, I think if anything, it highlights why that is more critical than ever. But Stan also gave a really beautiful address on his last episode of Q&A, and which you wrote about, and he got a standing ovation, but he had a plea for the media and he said, look, we need to do better. And I'm down right now, but I'll get back up. And he talked about his ability to draw love and strength from his people uh, and what it meant to be Wiradjuri. So, and I know, as I said, you wrote about this. So what what are your thoughts on this? Uh, The first thought is that I was really moved by his words. I didn't see them live. I read the words and I think... I can get very emotional reading speeches like that and I did get emotional and I think I would have been far more emotional if I had been watching it live. And I think he has a very good point and what I think is really sad in the days that have followed that speech is that there's sort of this war of words happening in the media about like people talking about how many times Stan Grant has been mentioned and it's sort of ongoing and it's like let's just take a break, let's just reflect on what he's actually said. We don't have to kind of go into this blame game of who was saying what, how much is being said about him but let's, you know, think about what he has said, think about the media's role in it and think about social media particularly and we have this on Women's Agenda where we can delete a lot of the comments that come up on social media posts but like it's out there. Like there is so much racism out there. It is so disgusting. There's so much misogyny out there as well. We know that, but there is so much racism out there too. And I mean, I saw the the story that we posted on this, it did have a really good response and mostly positive. I'm not suggesting that like being negative of Stan Grant means that you're being racist or anything like that. But frankly, we see the comments and a lot of them are racist. We, we try to delete them, but it gets to the point of us thinking, do we just need to turn all comments off altogether so that we can avoid this? And in some cases we have to do that. But like it is just there is so much out there that is disgusting. And I don't know why the voice referendum conversation or why in this case, you know, Stan Grant's appearance on that panel, like why it's like given so many people this permission to uh, and people in, you know, the mainstream media as well to write columns that can lead to, I guess, other people then sort of being a little bit more overt with their racism. And I think that's a really good point to make is that it's not always overt racism. It's this really latent undercurrent of us and them and, you know, 
would those words and would that sentiment be shared about a white journalist? You know, and I think that's what we need to reflect on is sometimes there are comments made that there is more of a racist tone to it rather than something that's like flagrant, you know, and I, I think it's a tricky one to to always get right, but I think we always need to be asking ourselves that question about like whether or not we would be saying that about a white man in power or, you know, in the case of misogyny, if we would be saying it about a man in power, you know, I think that we always need to be reflecting on that and reflecting on our own bias and how that's coming up because, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country are really feeling that right now and they're probably feeling it more than ever because this debate is charged and there are so many opinions in play and those opinions are being pushed out in a really toxic way a lot of the time. So, I mean, look, Stan Grant will be missed. I fully expect him to come back at some point and I think he's such an asset to journalism in this country. So, yeah. I want to say like one final point on his speech and it makes me a bit sad to say it, but the way he spoke about love and forgiveness and he said, I am down right now, I am, but I will get back up and you can come at me again and I will meet you with the love of my people. And it just, I mean, it's such a sad line to say, but it's such a beautiful line to say that he still has love in his heart despite the worst and most horrific comments that are being uh, thrown at him and his family. And he's saying that he will come back with forgiveness and he will come back with with love again and again. And it is quite beautiful. And there's so many lessons in that as well. And the other line that made me really sad was, I think, about media. And I think because, you know, we have a place in media, we're a media business, and that he said that we in the media must ask if we are truly honouring a world worth living in. And he talks about the, the media being the poison in the bloodstream of our society. And I find these words quite sad, but he says, I fear the media does not have the love or the language to speak to the gentle spirits of our land. Like, oh, yeah. It was such a moving speech. Yeah. It really was. It made me cry as well. So, Yeah. Uh, hopefully it does make people think. So on to our next story this week, and it's one that touched on you personally, Tala, after writing a LinkedIn post that resonated widely with many women who are struggling to access childcare and, and how that you know difficulty accessing childcare has an impact on their work and their work output and their productivity and the things that they're trying to do with their careers. Uh, so you wrote a powerful piece on your personal experience with this as well in regional New South Wales and how it's also amplifying cost of living pressures. Mm, mm. You mentioned also that this problem is likely even greater for women who don't run their own business. So you do run your own business and do have some flexibility. Um, So for women who don't have that flexibility or that strong network or don't have uh, a partner who can support them as well. So yeah, what can you share about that piece here? Yeah, I mean, I think I was sitting there last Friday and my baby was sick. So I'm already not able to access two days of care for her. So I have her home with me three days and my partner is a teacher's assistant. Um, So he gets home early and then I quickly dump the baby on him and run most days and then try to get work done and I work around her naps and all of this. Anyway, she was sick on a Friday. I had her in the crook of my arm and I'm there trying to like type an email and I just realized I was like, that is my situation so much of the time. And I am not an anomaly by any stretch of the imagination. And it was so hard because I felt like, I was like, I'm not really giving, she was asleep, but I was like, for the rest of the day that I have her, 
I'm not really giving her the attention or support. I am sitting here writing an email that would usually take me two minutes and it's taking me 15 minutes. And I got so frustrated in that moment and I wrote this post about the fact that, you know, we don't have enough accessibility to quality childcare in this country and it is causing, I imagine, a lot of problems around the nation. We know that it is because we hear about it all the time. But one of the things that I think that the government's not really looking at is, you know, the subsidy is going to increase in July for childcare, which is awesome. But at the same time, it really <laughs> it really is just like the tip of the iceberg of what actually needs to happen in childcare reform. You know, if we don't have enough centres around the country and particularly in regional and rural areas, if you don't have enough workers that are willing to to kind of put their hand up for those roles and why would they because all of them are burnt out or they're not being paid enough um you know there are so many issues at play there and where I live on the northern rivers you know I wrote about how two of the educators at my children's center have lost their homes in recent months you know this is what they're contending with and then they're showing up to work every day caring for other people's kids in the community while dealing with these huge traumas and pressures themselves on a personal level. And there's just nothing that's being done to properly support them. So for me personally, you know, I I do have my own business. I am incredibly lucky. And I think we've we've really built our business around being flexible and, and understanding those pressures, Ange. And I know that you understand the juggle better than anyone. But, you know, I still sit there and I'm feeling like so frustrated because I know that I could, my work output could be so much better if I could get my baby another day of care. I would be a better parent. I'm, I'm feeling the guilt on that end because so much of the day when I've got her, like I've, I've got her today, I know she'll be sitting there in my office while I try to do some, some work and she'll sit on the floor with some toys. And it's just, it is really not the best situation. And for women who are working for other organizations that can't access that kind of flexibility all they're doing is you know probably losing their jobs you know how do they make that work if if they can't get their baby into care for two days a week then they would lose their job a lot of the time they would lose that income and at the moment that income is incredibly critical I noted in my piece as well you know in the last year our mortgage has risen sixteen hundred dollars in just a year and childcare, even after subsidy is costing us $400 plus a week. You know, my partner is a teacher's assistant. He's not on a huge wage and I run a business. And I think these are pressures that everyone is dealing with. And we just, I think the government needs to go a lot further and a lot quicker on childcare reform. Anyway, that is my TED talk. I'm sorry, that was quite a rant, but... <laughs> Please add to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I like. I don't think I can do anything justice in terms of what we've already just said. I guess a few quick points is that the cost of childcare is going up. We're seeing the figures on that. Obviously, it does go up because the cost of living is going up because you know inflation, and also we've got to think about the educators and the fact that uh, these centres need to be able to uh, hire and employ these educators. And right now, they can't get enough. This is, I think, as we've stated many times before, this is the future of work. This is where we're having the skill shortages. This is really what we should be focusing on to ensure that we can have the infrastructure needed to underpin our economy now and into the future. And I think, you know, it's a shame that there was a little bit of something thrown at 
you know, educators in the federal budget, but really not enough. It needs huge consequential change. It needs huge pay rises, like we saw in aged care, where there was something at least. We need to see that applied to early childhood education as well. I don't see how we fix any of that if we don't start fixing the salaries there and make it more enticing for people to want to work in early childhood education. But obviously you've brought up living regionally as well. And I saw this line from um, Thrive by Five from Jay Weatherall who runs that and his quote, and I'll need to go and pull out the stats and I'm sure we can publish these somewhere, but he made the comment that children growing up in the country are twice as likely as city children to start school developmentally vulnerable. And I think like that's you know, this idea that being born in regional Australia is that level of a disadvantage, like we need to get on that immediately and fix that and we need to do it for those children and make sure that they can access that early childhood education. Obviously need to fix everything around it, but like can we just take that stat alone and think about how we can start to address that with early childhood education? Yeah, and I think, look, I probably sound like a, a broken record, but you know, all of the modelling is there. If we get that right, if we pay educators well, if we, you know, make this system universal, all we're doing is benefiting the economy and benefiting every Australian in the long run. It is not just about like throwing bones to parents with young children, which I'm sure, you know, there's an attitude out there that's pervasive in Australia about that. That is not what this is about. This is about long-term reform that is going to change the country and change the outcomes of where we get to. If we get the education right for children, if we, you know, release opportunities for women to get back into the workforce, for families to work in the right way, it just opens so many doors. It opens up innovation. It opens up our economy. And I just don't know why we're not getting that right. (sighs) Clearly, I feel very strongly about this one. (laughs) Um, I think we will cross to our interview now and we will check back in after the interview, Tyler. But uh, so last week, our producer, Alison Ho, interviewed the brilliant Brooke Blurton, who was Australia's first Indigenous and openly queer bachelorette. So Brooke recently appeared on Kemi Nekvapil's podcast, Power Talks, and in this interview, Ali gets to unpack a little bit about that episode, and Ali and Brooke also get into a conversation about mental health, social media, supporting young people, and Brooke shares her thoughts on the upcoming referendum for a voice to parliament. So a lot coming in this interview, and we'll cross to that interview now. Hi, Alison here. I'm the producer at Women's Agenda and for this podcast, The Crux. I have a very special guest joining me today for this interview segment of the episode. She is a proud Noongar Yamaji woman, a youth worker, mental health advocate, co-host of the podcast Not So PG, and author of the memoir titled Big Love, Reclaiming Myself, My People, My Country. On top of that, she is also a media personality who made giant waves for representation in Australian media by being both the first Indigenous and openly queer lead in the Bachelor franchise. Brooke Lurton, it is so lovely to have you on the podcast today. How are you? I'm well. Oh my God, you did honestly in the most perfect pronunciation of my my mob. Um, a lot of people pronounce that so differently and I'm always intrigued to how it comes off the tongue for people it's a hard one so you did amazing and thank you so much for having me I mean I love these types of conversations I think they're the best content and like substance so perfect balance 
You know, well, we're, we're so happy to have you today. And, you know, Brooke, just from that intro there, you have quite the portfolio. <laughs> There's no doubt of how brilliant you are. And you certainly are someone who, in the best way, has taken advantage of being in the public eye because you definitely use your platform to continue to amplify, uplift and advocate for a lot of different communities. And certainly a reason as to why the team here at Women's Agenda are such big admirers of your work. And, you know, social impact and advocacy, that's something that you've long been passionate about even prior to your television debut, particularly with mental health and supporting young people. That's something that you've consistently been very vocal about. And so this might come off as a shallow question maybe, and by no means am I trying to lump every reality TV personality into the same category. But, you know, despite that experience, how do you stay so grounded and how do you ensure that you know you don't lose that drive that you've always had in trying to help other people yeah I mean with my industry now out of youth work I think with social media and being part of the media and being part of um television it's really easy to get so wrapped up in it and and I guess sort of forget and move away from what you wanted to achieve in this world. I mean, I'm really lucky in a more cultural sense that my culture is a gift and I've been gifted it and I feel so beautiful and blessed to sort of share my culture around and it always sort of comes to the forefront and sort of leads charge with anything that I do. I mean, naturally in life I feel like we should live in alignment so we should really, you know, nut out what our values are what you know what our purpose is in life and you know what do we want to achieve because I think that makes life so much more purposeful and more enjoyable to do I mean you know life can get pretty mundane with some things that we you know as adulting is but I try to ground myself quite regularly and being back home always really helps but I think I always sort of revert back to why I would be doing something and does it bring me joy? Does it share or educate people on something? Is it something that I feel passionate about? So I always sort of ask like myself a few of the questions of why I do some things. And I think that kind of helps with reflecting and then going back and being like, oh yeah, this is a part of me and who I am. So living in alignment is really important. I mean, there are times in your work and career that you have to do things that you don't necessarily want to do. And I think, you know, I'm happy to sort of balance that out, not as much. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of a perfect segue into my next question, because you did mention how purposeful work in general really feeds into your own personal happiness. And you said this when you appeared on Kemi Nekfapil's new podcast, Power Talks. And uh, for our audience who don't know, uh, Power Talks is an Audible original podcast hosted by Kemi Nekfapil, where she hosts these one-on-one coaching sessions with well-known guests such as Brooke. Uh, We actually had the pleasure of interviewing Kemi last year for a different podcast series, and she had some really great advice into tapping into one's own power. So, you know, from your session with Kemi, can you share with us one key lesson you walked away with? Of course. I mean, Kemi just has this beautiful way about her that you sort of immediately trust her. I don't know if you guys felt, you know, when you did the interview, whether you felt that, but I definitely did. And going into something like a coaching session that's so vulnerable and you're unpacking things, it's easy to sort of get so um, 
worked up about it. But I mean, I went in with very low expectations. And when it's something to do with coaching, like I've never been coached before other than on the footy field. But I mean, that's a game and this is life. And so, you know, I went in with an open mind and I went in with an open heart about what was going to come out of it. And I mean, with Kemi and the coaching session, I think one of the things that I really admired and really enjoyed was the clarity out of the session. So, you know, she told me to do some homework and I'm one to do homework and, you know, gave me some like tangible things to go and do within myself to keep myself accountable, which I really enjoy. But the other thing was that clarity of unpacking the thing that we were focused on, obviously, was responsibility. Um, So so, so to go back to that responsibility is that she has an acronym. Obviously, it's power. And so I got R, which meant that I was unpacking what responsibility looked like for me, what it felt like. So, you know, responsibility is such a unique experience, I think, for me, like because I I hold myself accountable for a lot of things and and I hold myself responsible for a lot of things. And it's kind of in that session, I was unpacking what was my responsibility and what wasn't. So again, that clarity that just honestly put me on my little alignment path once again. (laughs) And it was certainly a very powerful episode. So tell listeners, if you haven't heard that episode yet, I definitely encourage you to tune in because, you know, in talking about responsibility, you, you touched on so many different things. You spoke about grief and guilt and seeking closure and you know, breaking out of intergenerational trauma, being on the brink of burnout, being that person that, you know, people tend to rely on. And then also the pressures that you put on yourself. And one thing that I really took away from that episode that I feel like might be helpful for our audience is building that healthy relationship between boundaries and responsibility. And I do want to talk about mental health because you did also touch on social media in your conversation with Kemi. Um, Mm -hmm. You are a mental health advocate but you're also very transparent about your own mental health and, you know, being in the public eye and and being on social media, you've likely come across so many trolls and moments where you've likely been cornered into having to respond to some very willfully ignorant people on the internet about your own lived experiences as a First Nations woman, as a queer woman or the intersection of both. And so Mm. I imagine that's psychologically and emotionally draining So if we're talking about boundaries and and mental health, where do you draw the line for yourself between, you know, feeling that responsibility to respond to comments with dangerous rhetoric or stereotypes, especially when it's aimed towards your community, and then moments where you go, I can't engage, it's not worth it, and I have to take care of my own mental well-being? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a muscle that I've worked on for a very long time to build myself up to be able to like, you know, pull away and lean in to, you know, when I need that support. I mean, mental health is actually, you know, we know that it's so complex and I think everyone's experience and lived experience is so different. And I've always just been very transparent with my mental health because I think that there's an urgency with it. There's an importance of it and there's a priority of it. And you should always prioritize yourself first, no matter what. And I think, you know, you should always prioritize your mental health absolutely first because you're not any help to anyone if you're 
not able to help yourself. And I have learned over the years of working in it, talking about it, um, and being in, in crisis and also, you know, um, experiencing my friends and family being in crisis is that there is a sudden urgency for it. And so when it needs attention and it needs care and it needs nurturing, absolutely. And I think social media, we need to remind ourselves that it's just an app at the end of the day. Like if it was to go tomorrow, how would we actually live our life? And would we be living in abundance? Would we be living a wholesome, enjoyable life? Like, could we do that without it? And I think that's more important. And I think you need to sort of have that balance of pulling out of it and pulling yourself out of it and pulling back off social media to have that balance and sort of that real reality of, of life to then remind you like, yeah, it's, it's not everything. Um, yeah, it's part of my job and I do enjoy it and I do love it most times. But at the times when my mental health and my self-esteem and I'm being impacted, I do an elimination process and that elimination is eliminating what's bringing me distress or what's bringing me stress and discouragement. Like I think social media is one of them and that's probably the first to go. And it's just a matter of, you know, open communication. I think I've always been, again, transparent with my following and my community that I've built because at the end of the day, I'm not superhuman. I'm actually just a real human that, you know, navigates emotions, feelings, um, situations, you know, and navigating my lived experience as well. So I think it's a nice reminder to people that like not everyone is just living a highlight reel. And yeah, I experience trolls and, you know, they can sort of cut deep at different times, but also it's a constant reminder to yourself where is there a, a learning here? Is it an educated response here? Or is it a matter of just realizing that these people who, you know, want to write these comments, they're just parting behind the keyboard at the end of the day? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of young people can definitely empathize and resonate with that sentiment because I know a lot of my friends and I, we have to actively switch it off and take a break away from social media because it can be much. And, you know, in the age of social media, we have the easiest access to the most content than ever before. And a lot of it is very confronting and a lot of it can be very overwhelming the more we're exposed to it. But even outside of this realm of social media, I feel like a lot of young people are still struggling to sort of navigate their youth in today's social political climate. You know, you are a youth worker and you're all about inspiring young people. And so from one young person to another, and even for our younger listeners out there, what is one message that you tend to always revert back to when trying to inspire and uplift young people? Ooh, I mean, there's so many different messages that I would tell my younger self. I think, you know, putting myself in the shoes of when I was that age or younger. But those times were also so different. You know, we didn't have the pressure of social media. And I actually think about this all the time. Like, you know, we were out and we were doing activities and, and being active and, and sort of, you know, experimenting and, and using our imaginations where now these days how we get enjoyment or how we stimulate ourselves is, you know, swiping on our phones. Um, so I think for me my message really is to try to live in the present moment and try to, like, live out 
all types of experiences. I mean, you know, I think we're just so stuck and drawn to our phones these days. And I also think the other thing, you know, when it comes to self-esteem and when it comes to building yourself up is try not to be anything that you're not and always stick and stay in alignment with, you know, who you want to be and who you are. Because I think that will drive your life to where you're going, whatever your purpose is, really. Yeah, definitely. Some very productive advice that I will certainly yes. take on myself as well. <laughs> I mean, I can say the cliche thing of, you know, I mean, it's not cliche because I actually, you know, live my life like this as well. But you are the only version of yourself and you have to sort of try and be the best version of yourself for yourself, not really for anyone else, but for you. Absolutely. Um, Brooke, I am wary of time, but I do want to pivot into a more timely issue in my last question before I let you go. We do have a referendum coming up and a big one for us because we haven't had one in a very long time. And uh, you are a supporter of The Voice. Uh, I believe you've been a part of The Voice for just shy of four years. Is that correct? Yeah, I was part of the youth dialogue when it first sort of was established um so the voice was obviously created in 2017 well not the voice itself the voice is obviously just a word for it but the, you know the statement was created in 2017 which was advocating for a voice in constitution and then in 2019 I was part of the youth dialogue to really push this and to start campaigning for this referendum um so, yeah, I have been a part of it. I do wholeheartedly support The Voice. I think we've seen little to bits of recognition throughout the years since colonisation, but I think personally, you know, this is a good direction to be going in. And I think, you know, win or lose, you know, you do have to think, predict the outcome of things negatively or positively, but I think, you know, a lot will show from whether this is a no or yes. Absolutely. And so, you know, with that, what is something you want Australians to keep in mind about the referendum? And what are your fears if it doesn't pass? What I would like for people and and maybe all Australians other than, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, because I think we're super aware of what this means. I mean, all Australians can, and I would really encourage them to do the work, do the knowledge, do the education, because you know, I think a 1967 referendum, and this is going to give you some perspective of why the voice um, and that recognition is important, is because in 1967 when the referendum happened, my nana was 27, so she was born 1940. And in 1967 when she was 27 and that, that was passed, she was only ever acknowledged as a person in that time. So she was 27, now I'm currently 28, and she wasn't actually acknowledged as a person until she was 27 years old. So that makes me think, wow, I've had the freedom and the luxury of going and getting an education where she was denied education. And so that's only two generations up. So that's my mum's mother. And to think that she was denied education and I so freely can go access that is we've come a long way 
but we still have so much more to go. And I think the voice and the recognition in the constitution will advocate for us Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for having agency over our own lives. And you guys can be a part of that. Like all Australians can be a part of that because no person should feel disadvantaged or have discourse. And so, yeah, I really encourage for people to go do the work, really support the voice and support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Absolutely. I think doing the work and doing the research is absolutely crucial. If you're going to be voting in a referendum, at the very least, you've got to know what it's about. But it's incredible how full circle it is. Like she was 27 during the 1967 referendum and now you're about the same age. And mm. Brooke, I think that's a really beautiful way to wrap up the podcast today. If you want to learn more about Brooke unpacking her responsibilities and tapping into her inner power, go check out Power Talks with Kemi Nekvapil. It's available now on Audible. But be sure to also check out Brooke's podcast that she hosts alongside Maddie Mills called Not So PG. Grab a copy of her book, Big Love. And while you're at it, go follow Brooke on social media for more authentic content. Brooke Blurden, it was such a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. It was such a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you to Ali for that excellent interview and to Brooke for making the time. Tala and I both just love Brooke's work. We just think that she is a gorgeous person on so many levels and great to hear her discuss those uh, so many key and important issues there and to, to bring all her warmth and life to those as well. So thank you to Brooke. So that's it for the episode. Any final thoughts, Tala? Uh, look, my final thoughts, Angela, are that we've got a pretty exciting project coming up next week. Oh yeah, that. Right. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to get too much on, but I just want to throw our listeners a little bone that on Women's Agenda we're going to be launching something pretty, pretty saucy. Saucy. <laughs> Oh, they, they, people could go in so many directions with this and I feel like they're going to be disappointed. So, <laughs> I know. Uh, probably not the right adjective, but it's going to be good and it's coming next Thursday. Uh, it will be, we'll be launching on site around what we're doing. So please just keep an eye out for that announcement. Yeah, keep an eye out for that announcement. And my final thought, this is a spoiler for Succession. So, Tala, no, don't, don't. I know that you are at the beginning of Succession, and unless you've somehow managed to watch to season four in the last few days, which maybe you can, (laughs) given your comments about childcare, I'm guessing you can't. (laughs) Yeah, it's a line from Chivroy, so just skip ahead or just cut out of this episode right now if you don't want to hear this. But it is a line from Chivroy, and I just sometimes the lines, I, I just stop and have to think about them, and I record it and I write it down, and I just. They just throw up so many issues all at once. And this actually comes back to the conversation I was having about the breastfeeding and the CEO at the beginning of the episode. But Shivroy, uh, she is kind of quietly pregnant and she's thinking about this. Uh, she wants to be put up for this American CEO role. And in response to that, the individual who would be uh, in charge of trying to promote that idea kind of looks at her and does this sort of thing like, but you're, and he makes a noise saying, you know, he's basically indicating he's heard the rumor that she's pregnant. First of all, the fact that he can't even say that the word pregnant or that having a baby or congratulations or anything like that just speaks volumes and it's just so true of what can happen in the business world. But also her line in response where she looks at him and it's kind of clear that she's kind of losing the ambition to get this role and it must be incredibly 
frustrating for her. And she's like, oh, but, you know, I'm going to be one of those hard-beat bitches who's going to do like 36 hours of maternity leave, emailing through my vanity ceases cesarean uh, and poor kid will will hardly ever see me i just threw up so much of, of you know women trying to go for roles while pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant or you know shortly after being pregnant and these uh stereotypes that still continue into leadership and and i think also the role that this baby is playing uh in the final episodes and this pregnancy that nobody really knows about it's just uh, it's really interesting and a reflection of so much as so many other points in that show are and i encourage everybody to please watch it. I do want a bit of succession. (laughs) And that is it for today's episode. So thank you for listening. A reminder, you can catch up on all the stories that we've discussed on Women's Agenda, where you can also subscribe to our lunchtime daily email and you can get the first word on whatever that thing is happening next week. And it's not as saucy as baby Tyler's making it out to be, but it is really exciting and we're really uh, thrilled to be able to particularly take it to organisations and bring a whole heap of really great and inspiring women along with us. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening. <laughs>